1: morning, the 29th of January. Good morning, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. There was a slight decrease in the number of people who were homeless in this country last month, but that will come as little comfort to the government. Unquestionably.
2: The number one challenge remains homelessness and those who don't have a home in ensuring that they can have a permanent home for them and their family.
1: While 196 fewer people were homeless in December than there were in November, 13,318 people did not have a place to call home and were living instead in hotels or B and B's, close to 4,000 of those, 3,962 were children. And actually, since 2020, we've exited
2: 21,212 single adults and families who have either been prevented or exited from homelessness and into permanent homes for them. About 14,000 HAP tenancies converted from HAP transferred out of HAP and into permanent social homes and that's what we have to continue doing.
1: All right, that's the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, speaking in uh, the Dáil last week, saying that the government needs to continue doing what it is doing. That drop of 196 people from the number of people who are officially recorded as being homeless uh, may be seen in different lights. Uh, indeed, I think uh, the department has uh, been putting a positive spin on it, saying that it demonstrates how the tenant-in-situ scheme is effectively preventing people from going in- into homelessness when uh, they've received a notice to quit. Uh, and they also make the point that over uh, the last... Last quarter, 609 households exited homelessness. That's across three months, of course. And 1,161 households during that per- period were prevented from uh, entering into emergency accommodation. The other argument on the other side of all of this is that it is Christmas. And uh, because of uh, the time of year that uh, you will always see a drop in the number of people who are homeless uh, because their family members are perhaps a little bit more under standing, a little bit more charitable take them and their children in over the Christmas period so that they at least have a roof over their head. Uh, But uh, there's an awful lot of people, an awful lot of people who were without a roof over their head throughout uh, the Christmas period. A a time for family, a time to be at home, a time to be together. 13,318 people as we've been hearing uh, so far uh, this morning, uh, that figure of uh, was published on Friday by the Department of Housing, uh, and of that, and this is, I think, uh, the part that most people find difficult to, to contend with: 3,962 are children. That's just close to 4,000 children who were homeless, living in a hotel, living in a B&B wondering if Santa would have found them over the Christmas period. Almost 4,000 children or 1,916 families. This, of course, is not a a new problem. It's uh, more than a decade. It's at least 15 years, probably 16 years since the crash in 2008, since we've seen the figures rise. Uh, And whilst this may uh, be the first drop in a long time, there still remains many, many questions. Let's speak now to Rowan McMahon. Amara, who's head of media communications with Focus Ireland. Uh, Very good morning to you, Rowan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. So what do you attribute uh, this small drop in the numbers to? 196 fewer people homeless in December than would have been the case in November. Are are you encouraged by that? Uh, Or or would uh, you argue that it's a typical kind of drop that you would normally see in December uh, December because of people uh, moving back in to live with other relatives and friends? As the case may be.
3: Yeah, we feel it's a mixture of both because it is, a you know, while it's small in the scale of things, 196 people is still quite a, a lot of people, nearly 200 people you're talking about. And there is, as you very rightly say, the uh, tradition of uh, wider families or relatives perhaps taking people who are homeless uh, in emergency accommodation in for an agreed short-term period over Christmas. So we think that would make up some of it. But uh, we would be uh, very hopeful that uh, the government and the local authorities have also been allocating uh, more of the new social housing coming on stream to people who are long-term families and people who are long-term homeless. because That's something that Focus Ireland has been calling for for a significant amount of time now, and it's something that could really, uh, you know, uh, make a quick uh, impact on, on, on this problem. Mm. If we look at the numbers for Mead, uh, Mead kind of, I suppose, booked the trend slightly that there was two, three, four people uh, homeless in November and, and or, or sorry two three two people homeless in meet in November, and that went up by two to two three four, but there was a welcome drop in loud of eleven people from one eighty to one six nine now the only way we we'll really see the impact is is we want this trend to continue mm. like everyone, and we'll have to see what the January figures uh, reflect uh, however we while it, we are you know welcoming as any number of people. Less people homeless is very, very welcome, but it still comes against the backdrop of a very sharp 14 percent rise uh, in the last year, which is, you know. And they're still massive
1: figures. I mean, it's incredible. It's it's shameful. Uh, We just heard the minister, Darrell O'Brien, in the trip a a moment ago saying the government needs to keep doing what it has been doing. Uh, are, Are there other steps that the government could be taking?
3: Yeah, well, I think the steps that they could be taken are the first one with, with the stroke of a pen. With the stroke of a pen, actually, you could. Uh, uh, sorry, are you still there?
1: Yes, absolutely.
3: Oh, sorry, there's a, a, a beep there. Just put me off. Sorry.
1: Oh, uh, my apologies for that, uh, Rowan. Um, yeah. The line is clear for you now, I hope, is it? Oh, yeah. Yes, OK. You were talking about the other steps uh, that the government can take with the stroke yes, of a
2: pen. Uh,
3: yes yes they could they could uh stroke pen uh, allocate more uh, houses to people who are long term homeless and they could also look at doing uh better better prevention services for instance it, you know, remember when the uh, eviction ban was ended uh you know they they talked about this uh, the, uh safety net of measures and it's it 's a good phrase a safety net of measures and i don 't want to seem you know too negative on it. But the safety net of measures hasn't turned out to live up to that name. If we look at some of the measures they were putting in place for prevention was uh, tenant in situ schemes where uh, local councils could uh, liaise with the landlord to buy the properties and Mm. keep the people at risk of homelessness uh, in them, you know, as social housing tenants then. The numbers on that are really, really disappointing. So I, I'd call on the government, you know, not just me, obviously, folks. I'd mm. call on the government to fully review that and look, why isn't this working? That should be working. You Which know, is
1: completely at odds with what the department said about this. They said that the drop in figures proves that the tenant in situ scheme is effectively preventing people who receive a notice to quit from going into emergency accommodation. accommodation. You'd obviously yeah. dispute that.
3: I, we would strongly dispute that. Yeah, I don't have the figures to hand, but mm. we've seen them, and unless they have new figures right up to last month that are showing something different, you know, we've seen that they're very disappointing. To be honest, you know, uh, in terms of, and I think there was even uh, again, I don't have the figures to hand. There was a, an article in the Indo last week showing uh, another thing: uh, you know, the grants they give for for derelict properties. But that's not uh, working uh, as if, as if that effectively either. Now we we're, we want the solutions to work. We're not here to just criticise, but when they're not working effectively enough, and we're seeing a fourteen percent rise year on year, you know we we call on you know you can't just keep saying oh we have these systems in place and they're working when the figures aren't coming down. If they were working truly, we'd be seeing the figures coming down month on month and not just one month at Christmas.
1: Right. Uh, And we are, of course, talking about people who have no option but to seek emergency accommodation. There's an awful lot of people who you would describe as the hidden homeless.
3: Yeah, yeah. What we're seeing now, you know, and it it kind of always happened to an extent, but because of the property crisis right around the country, uh, uh, it's it's an awful uh, situation. Uh, you're seeing people who themselves perhaps don't even realize they're homeless for a while. They, they might be, you know, have lost their, their apartment or their flat and they're staying with friends or sleeping on a sofa, sofa surfing and all of a sudden it's gone on for a few months and uh, the situation's untenable and they have to go to emergency accommodation.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned the vacant uh, property refurbishment grant uh, and the low figures uh, just have that data to hand now. Just one in 50 applicants uh, received the grant. That's just 127 vacant property that have uh, been given funding to refurbish them.
3: Yeah, and that's, that's, you know, often things like that, you know, can be, uh, you know, I'm no expert on the scheme, but often things like that can be because there's so much red tape in place and the mm. local authorities have to follow things. So, you know, we think, like, you know, the government needs to be far more agile and quicker. When, when, when you see figures like that, one in 50, you know, people aren't applying for the last. They obviously think they have a good chance of getting it and you, bringing the property back on stream into the housing stock. There should be an urgent review of that. Why isn't that working? OK, what could we change and get more of these properties back into the housing stock? Because we really need them.
1: Right. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, we are very concerned about all of uh, the people in the emergency department. Uh, it is no joke to be living in a hotel or a B&B or uh, whatever uh, accommodation has been provided to you on a temporary basis, not knowing what uh, the future holds for you. But at least I suppose you could argue you've a roof over your head. You've 700 single men now who are sleeping in tents on the streets of Dublin uh, and they don't figure in these numbers, do they?
3: no no uh, they they don't and you know the two systems the, the asylum seeker si- systems and the, the, and the if you if you're referring to that and then mm-hmm. the, the people uh, uh, are are very different at the moment and that's why uh, the, the, you know it it, it it what we need to do is lift more people out of emergency accommodation so that could be freed up then uh, you know for, for uh, international applicants who who need it mm. Uh, because people confu- con-
1: P- people often confuse the two, uh, I think, Rowan. Yeah, and yeah, that's why do, I mentioned yeah. it. They're very, very different. Uh, the seven hundred people on the streets are, are, are having no effect on uh, the fourteen thousand people or thirteen thousand people or, or so who are homeless in this country.
3: No, no, very, very rightly said. And it, it does, you know, get very confused, you know, uh, by by the public and indeed in some parts of the media, even, you know. So it's very good of you, you to uh, point it out but so what we what we think is is if we did you know start using uh, a fairer share of allocations for uh people who are long term homeless individuals and families uh it it would like free up emergency accommodation because as we can see the government is kind of lurching from crisis to crisis in, in in terms of uh trying to find uh, accommodation for international protection uh Applicants and indeed the Ukrainian refugees. While there have been some very welcome successes, again, you know, they they, they need to have better communications with local communities and uh, really, you know, get on top of this uh, situation. The one thing I just add is, as well, is is the, the you know it is obviously you know far better not to be out in the street. But mm. if we see, we've seen the the trauma that's particularly to the four thousand children that being homeless is causing to them, you know, and uh, you know, they can be in hotel rooms, as you said. Mm. They've nowhere to do their homework. Yeah. They've no privacy. They've no f- where it's proper to play. And, you know, we've heard stories of, you know, some places do provide food, but other cases where, you know, uh, mothers and fathers have to you know, boil an egg uh, with hot water from a kettle or something to yeah. when the child wakes up hungry in the middle of the night sir, or something. Mm. So, it, 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 And obviously our services do work, for folks Our in services do work very hard with child protection workers to try and protect them with what they really need is a home, you know. So it, 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 it's uh, essential that we get on yeah. top of both sides of the crisis.
1: Fundamental. Odd to think that it has been a problem, more than a problem, a crisis uh, that has gone on for as long as it has, over 15 years at this stage. Rowan, we leave it there, though, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Rowan McNamara, Head of Media Communications with Focus
0: Ireland. 086 1800 658 The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it.
1: Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail, Neil Richmond uh, TD, has launched a public consultation on the payment of tips. The Minister joins us and a very good morning to you Minister. Thank you indeed for your time as always uh, with us here this morning. This is a statutory review uh, and uh, was to take place after one year because it's a year since this legislation was brought in which should have ensured that tips or gratuities or service charges charges uh, would go to those uh, they were intended to. Are, are there any concerns at this stage?
4: I think so far the legislation's been working well. It's, there's been very few cases brought to the WRC, very few complaints, which is a good thing, because we always knew that the vast, vast majority of employers are decent and want to do the right thing by their employees. But We're very keen to make sure that work pays. We want to make sure that those that work in sectors where there are taps, and this can be in bars or restaurants, but also... Uh, hairdressers and and taxis and many other things that they actually get their tips that they know they're entitled to tips particularly those who maybe have come from a different jurisdiction so one year in uh, the legislation's been in place we were asked to introduce fines by the WRC by the inspectors just as a, as a precaution, you know, as a deterrent as opposed to necessarily as sort of a, something that we actually want to use. But a year in, we're now looking for consultation for those people who are working in the sectors. We're looking to hear it from employees. We're looking to hear it from management. We're looking to hear it from people who own establishments um, in the sectors where there's tips paid. And we're looking to hear from them on the enterprise.ie.gov.ie website between now and the 22nd of February.
1: Uh, and how should uh, tips... Uh, be locked on when they're given over in in a restaurant? uh, I I think probably uh, as the best example, because there's many people working in in a place like a a restaurant. Should it go to the employee uh, who was serving the table or or could it go to a a number of employees or could it go to the employer for that matter?
4: Well, we're very keen that it goes to... The people actually who are who are doing the job. So that is yes, it is the the, the front-facing people, the the waiters, the waitresses, the sommelier, the manager, first and foremost. But there is a place, obviously, for going to the wider staff, to the kitchen staff who may be prepared uh, the delicious food that is being served up. But all we want to make sure is that every employee knows their rights. That when it's in their contract, that when they receive tips, that this is their money, it's not the money of the establishments, and that they get the tips and somehow they're not put back in and then distributed. Um, at a diminished rate from their wages or they're put into overall takings. A tip is a reflection on a good level of service, be it in a restaurant or indeed in a hairdresser. and And there's lots of different reasons why people give a tip, but it really does bring out the best of customer service. We're not like the US where we're reliant on tips, but equally we're not like the continent where tips are perhaps an alien concept. They're a really important part, but the most important thing is to make sure that they actually go to the people who have serve the food, made the food, given the haircut rather than the establishment itself. And that those people, crucially, know that they're entitled to it, to those tips, that it's their money and it's their rights. And that's why we have this legislation to protect us, that's why we have inspectors to make sure mm. that um, premises are paying on boards but equally why we want to hear those people who are impacted by it to see how can we improve this legislation or is everything just working A-OK as it is. Uh,
1: and you decide what to tip or if you're going to tip. Uh, a service charge is something different? Uh, it, it's part of what you're going to be charged, uh, and it's a set uh, amount. Can that go to the employer?
4: Yeah, the service ch- charge reflects something different. So, service charge may apply if you have a particularly large group. If you have eight to ten or pe- eight to ten people, or or maybe way more, so that's separate, and that's reflection that it takes an awful lot more uh to cater for a group of that size.
1: I a think it I think it's t- usually in place, Minister, because uh, in a group that size people forget to tip. Uh, they just they're asked for their portion of the bill if they're asked at all, but they forget to tip.
4: That's part of it, but it it is more a reflection that catering for a party of twelve is a lot different than two or four. Um and the way that bill is paid is a lot different. You know, a tip is at the discretion of the people who are receiving the service, you know, some people mm. would that go for twelve and a half percent. I believe it's up to twenty-two and a half percent in the U.S., but that's a reflection in that they have a lower wage scale in the in the services and hospitality sector. A service charge is, but it's very much a distinct one. But that goes to, as I said, that goes as part of the bill. It's at a set agreed rate that's advertised. You can still give a tip. On top of the service charge,
1: oh, mm.
5: and
4: indeed many people choose to do so, and I I would recommend it particularly. Well, you've preempted
1: my question push. because a lot of people think I won't tip because there's a service charge, and that means that what I'm paying includes the tip.
4: It includes our tip, but like at the end of the day, mm. some of us. we'll we'll round up our bill and throw on an extra 10% or we'll round to the the closest zero to give a tip that we think reflects service. But if you've had a particularly good experience, Mm. I personally believe it's always good if you're in a position to... to to, to, you know to respect that service and recognize that service with a good decent tip directly to the people who've allowed you to have a really wonderful experience perhaps mm. out at dinner or just a particularly good haircut or a very enjoyable taxi ride
1: absolutely yeah and uh, where does a service charge go though that 's uh, my next question does it necessarily go to the staff and only the staff
4: it goes into the it goes into the wider establishment who then takes it into part that this because it's a larger party, it takes the service, so it's not just the staff uh, in terms of the waiting staff, if it's a restaurant or the kitchen staff, but it's also the cleaning staff, it's also the preparation staff, it's also the fact that um, the restaurant has had to accommodate a bigger party at, you know, it, and, and aren't able to take in three or four multiple bookings. So it, it goes into the wider establishment, whereas a tip is something different. But again, a tip is a completely voluntary thing as well from the customer's point of
1: view. Of course. And many people uh, realise uh, that uh, the people who are dishing them up uh, this wonderful food, delicious food, as you put it, or uh, making sure that they look lovely in the hairdressers uh, are, are not so well paid uh, and are very happy and keen to uh, reward them uh, for uh, the good work that they're doing. Uh, some people make a lot of money in, in tips and uh, there's the age-old question as to whether they should be taxable or not. I- is that something that the government has looked at?
4: It is, actually. And I know that's because when I was a, a backbencher, I put in parliamentary questions on this because um, it, tips aren't taxed. They weren't taxed in, in France. But one thing that we want to see going forward, or I personally want to see going forward, is that a lot of less people are carrying less cash these days you know, people are, are paying by, by card or revolution or whatever it is, um, and that means that they're not necessarily making sure that we have to make sure that there's a system that goes through to ensure that those tips on the card payment go separate to the bill and go to the employee. That's something I think that's really important because you're right, the vast majority of sectors where people generally receive tips, be hospitality or hairdressing, would be on the lower uh, the lower wage setting and many of them are just earning just above minimum wage and of course we've increased the minimum wage of the 1st of January mm. but it's still quite a low salary and the tip is it's not when it comes to taxation it's not a guaranteed income you know it's something that reflects service it's something that reflects performance or indeed the experience of the customer it's not something that you can Pay your rent off the back of, or indeed any other bills?
1: Well, depending on uh, (laughs) the the establishment you work for, some people do very well in tips uh, and will tell you they earn more in tips than they do in wages.
4: And that would be a reflection on the on the worker, mm. you know. And this has been the way, certainly in the United States for years. And I remember when I was a young student working in North America, you got a lower rate of minimum wage if you were working in that, in, in in a bar, for example, because tips were so good. And I would know people in the U.S. who would who would earn double the amount of their basic salary on tips. Mm. It's different than a bonus scheme I suppose for those working in in finance or sales. But again, it's not dependent. It's not dependent. It's not guaranteed don't have any entitlement if you're sick for example yes if you if you are on a wage you do what you are entitled to uh, sick pay you are entitled to days off but the tips don't travel with you it's, the, it's too variable for some people to rely on and of course it could just be a slow night you mightn't have a lot of business and I know a lot of establishments mm-hmm. would have had a, a lean enough January because it's not a month where a lot of people go out for example or, or go for those extra things but hopefully that will pick back up now uh, that we're into the second month of the year people have been paid bank holidays and into all the other things that come ahead
1: Okay. You mentioned that uh, if people feel that their tips are going to their employer instead of them receiving them, they can take a case to the WRC. But that typically doesn't happen, does it, Minister, until... Uh, relations have completely and uh, somebody is out or has already left their place of employment. I take it, in other words, that you don't hear uh, when this is happening, if it is happening. uh, And as you say, for the most part, you presume that it is happening. But when you're uh, looking to hear from people about this, I I take it you'd uh, be hoping to hear from trade unions in particular uh, and uh, the information that they're gathering uh, in general from employees.
4: Of course, but there's a very low um, trade union representation within, say, the hospitality sector uh, in particular compared to other industries. So we really do want to hear from workers themselves. We want to hear about the people who um, who are having good experiences but have noticed that in the last 12 months that they have been given uh, their contract by their employer where it clearly states the rules in relation to tips where they can see it displayed in the staff room or the break room, whatever it is, mm-hmm. in the establishment that they're aware of it, and um, that the notice is put up in premises. That's what we want to hear from, but of course, trade unions and equally employment employment groups and indeed individual businesses across Loud and Mead, we'd love to hear.
1: All right. Uh, And uh, when it comes uh, to the minimum wage and the Workplace Relations Commission, uh, were you concerned at uh, the increase in the number of cases taken to the WRC uh, where employers were in breach uh, of the legislation, not paying out the minimum uh, wage uh, in some 228 cases over the course of the last year?
4: Yeah, that's 228 cases too many. Um, in one hand, it shows that the WRC are doing their job. We've increased the budget of the WRC. We've increased the amount of inspectors that can go into workplaces. But we want to make sure that the, Ireland is a great place uh, to work, equally a great place mm. to run a business. And the way you do that is to play by the rules, to pay your It's easy to
1: circumvent money. the rules, though, is it not, Minister? I, I mean, you hear uh, of employers who are paying the minimum rate, but then asking people to work maybe 50 hours a week in return for what would be the pay for 40 hours a week?
4: No, and that, that, again, this is anecdotal stuff, but what we have seen consistently as we've tightened up the legislation, it is much harder, quite simply, to break the rules, and that's why cases are going to the WRC. And in fairness, the vast majority of people who contribute to the economy as a whole, employers and employees alike, play by the rules, and that's what we want to see. Um, it's quite clear what someone's right. No one can be asked required to ask more be asked to work more than 14 hour 49 hours a week mm. it has to be clear that their their hourly pay is based on every single hour they work um and that the that the rules and the employment terms of contract is made available to them we have a very strong suite of employee rights uh, legislation in this country Frankly we don't have to use it too much and um, we're known for having really good workers rights but equally this is a great place to do business run a business and one of the top five easiest places in the
1: world to to set up a a business. Okay, and it may be anecdotal, but I I think uh, there's many examples. I've certainly heard many examples and probably not surprisingly, it it relates quite often to people uh, who are hoping uh, that their customers will tip them, uh, but that they're working longer than they're actually being paid for if uh, they were to be paid the national minimum wage uh, because of uh, the hours that they're working. Uh, should there be uh, harsher sanctions for employers uh, who, who breach the legislation, do you think, Minister?
4: Well, in terms of the TIPS legislation, we've increased the sanctions. Um, we've introduced fines, um, on-the-spot fines of €250 euro increased up to €1,500. Euro. But absolutely, we do have strong sanctions against employers who break the rules. Frankly, we don't have to use them too often. The amount of cases before the WRC are at a steady level. Again, we've increased the number of inspectors. We want to work hand-in-hand with employers because, as I said, 99.9% of employers are really, really good. They're making huge sacrifices to make their establishments a great place to work. It's the 0.1% who bring down the rest of the economy. So we have strong sanctions. We don't want to use them, but they are there if they're needed.
1: All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. That is the Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail, Neil Richmond, TD.
0: LMFM.ie The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Jane
1: texting us uh, this morning saying, I-, I work between 54 and 56 hours a week. I get paid for 37 hours a week. Well, that's what my pay slip uh, says. And I-, I questioned this and I was told, well, that's all we can uh, afford. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of uh, people who'd be willing to take you on if you want to look for a different job. Uh, but uh, we've a-, a list of people here who are happy. Uh, to take uh, your job at that pay. So I feel like uh, I've no choice. Well, as the Minister said, you can take a case to the WRC. I think you probably heard the advert there during uh, the break uh, as well, encouraging you to join a trade union because what is happening if what you say is true is illegal uh, and it uh, should be uh, something uh, that w- should be tackled. Uh, and, and certainly if you don't do it yourself, you're, if you join a trade union, uh, they will be very quick to do it on your behalf. And indeed, uh, on behalf of your colleagues, if it's happening to you, it's probably happening to the people that you work with. Uh, a text from Damien who says he saw a sign in a restaurant and it said all tips are shared by staff according to an agreed formula. What does that mean, he wonders? Sounds odd, he says. Uh, He wonders if it meant that the tips aren't shared equally among the staff. What is the formula? An interesting (laughs) sign, indeed, Of ever. Uh, Dredrick Kel says, I always give tips when I'm out for a meal. It's a good idea. Thank you for that as well. Thanks to Teresa as well, who has uh, been emailing the programme. Teresa uh, emailing about RTE coverage of uh, the Israel Hamas Conflict, uh, and she asks why RTE continue to mislead us with these constantly uninformed reports on the Middle East. I I presume um, you take issue with a lot of uh, the uh, news organisations that uh, we all tune into, Theresa. I'm not sure that there would be much difference whether between the RTE and the BBC or the Virgin Media coverage or whatever. But anyway, she says you bring in these so-called war-mongering experts uh, and we hear their bias in the conversations without any proof about attacks on American military bases in Jordan, Syria, Afghanistan by unknown forces solely to blame uh, 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 and all the blame goes on Iran uh, in order, she feels, to escalate conflict and give Biden an excuse to go to another illegal war with Iran. Why not mention that these are illegal American military bases? Why not mention and report ...report the fact that the Israeli government and many of its politicians have openly been calling for the destruction of UNRWA for some time. It's well past time that uh, some proper research was done and that we got independent reporting and stopped parroting the vile, obnoxious US-Israeli propaganda that is polluting and proliferating in world media. Thank you indeed, uh, Theresa, for very strong comments and uh, indeed uh, strong thoughts. Uh, thanks uh, for sharing them with us. Our email address is michael at lmfm.ie Now, speaking of RTE, the Rich List ha- has been published. No, sorry, that's not. it's not called the Rich List, is it? It's called the Top Ten Earners. I, I think it's known as uh, the Rich List. Uh, by anybody who's not on the top 10 earners list. And to put it into context, because I'm sure you've been hearing some of uh, the figures uh, this morning, but uh, the Taoiseach of this country is paid a salary of two hundred and thirty thousand three hundred and seventy two euro. That's a lot of money, isn't it? Two hundred and thirty thousand and three hundred and seventy two euro. That's a lot of money for the Taoiseach, but it's a very important job. No wonder the Taoiseach is paid so well, uh, because it is such an important job. You know, the job of running. The Country Uh, the president of uh, the country uh, earns slightly more, 249,014 euro, uh, although he's entitled to a much higher figure of 325,507 euro. uh, But uh, he's decided uh, that uh, he'll forego uh, close to 100,000 from his salary uh, and has gifted it back to the state. So the president's paid. 249,000. Let's round them up and down. 250,000 for the president, 230 for the Taoiseach. The American president is earning $400,000. That's the equivalent of about 370,000. Euro. Um, so, uh, really, uh, actually, we do play our Taoiseach and our president an awful lot of money, don't we, when you compare it to the American president? But anyway, uh, you've, as you've heard, uh, 515000 uh for uh, Ryan Turberty, uh, who didn't work for RTE, um, that went to a production company called Tuttle Productions, um, uh, and then they paid Ryan Turbity. Uh, what's Tuttle Productions made up of other than Ryan Turbity? Um, there's another fellow there uh, who doesn't work for RTA at all. His name is Joe Duffy, uh, but he does a bit of contract work, uh, and uh, there's a company that he works for called Cladderine or Cladder Limited. And for the work that this contractor, Joe Duffy, did for RTA, uh, €351,000. And of course, uh, there's uh, different ways that that money is looked on uh, by revenue because it's not a -A PAYE employee, it's a contractor. Joe Duffy doesn't work for RTE. Claire Byrne doesn't work for RTE. She got 350,000. Just to remind you, the T-shock earns 230,000. Claire Byrne got 350,000 euro last year. but she doesn't work for RTE, but RTE paid her $350,000. Miriam O'Callaghan, she doesn't work for RTE either. She got 263000 Um, but uh, RTE paid her that, although she doesn't work for RTE. She works for Baby Blue Productions. What next productions were given $305,000 RTE by, by RTE um, for some work that was done by uh, one of its staff um, who doesn't work for RTE? That's a fellow called Ray Darcy. But but RTE paid him €305,000 through that production company because he doesn't work for RTE. He's a contractor. Uh, And uh, Brendan O'Connor doesn't work for RTE. um, But he does a little bit uh, on a contractual basis at the weekends. 245000 to his... Uh, company 80C Communications, I think it's called, 245,000. Uh, and just to remind you, that's uh, we're down to six there on the list, uh, well above uh, the Shock salary of 230,000 euro. And I always think the question is why the Taoiseach is paid less for running the country than someone uh, who is paid more for talking about the way the country is being run. Anyway, that's the world that we live in, like it or lump it. If you'd like to comment on that or something else today, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is zero four one nine eight three two thousand. text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email
0: michael at lmfm.ie. The Michael Reid Show, brought to you by Airgrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it.
1: Now the deposit return scheme for plastic drink bottles and cans is set to be implemented on the 1st of February this week. And this means uh, that you'll be charged 15 or 25 cent more per. Bottle or can, as the case may be, but when you return the bottle or the can, you get the 15 or the 25 cents back. Uh, the Irish Times is reporting this morning that the operator of uh, the scheme is looking to find alternative ways of getting people to return empties because the majority of small retailers have opted out of taking back containers. Let's speak to Vincent Jennings, Chief Executive of the Convenience Stores and News Agents Association, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Vincent, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You gave many reasons in a letter that you wrote to the Irish Times last week for smaller shops not signing up to this scheme. Uh, And uh, perhaps you'd take us through them because uh, I think you were talking about uh, counterfeiting and fraudulent conversion of these logos that will be on these bottles and cans that uh, will be entitled to refunds on. Uh, But it's far too complicated and cumbersome for small shops to do this because I suppose the first question is uh the affordability of one of these machines that the bigger shops will have and they're very expensive you say
5: good morning michael yeah look i mean we are looking for there to be some form of technological device provided to retailers which would immediately and automatically uh, identify the, the the logos and the barcodes because that's what the machine does and in a millisecond, it will accept. It knows from its data bank what is and what is not. Uh, what's known as an in scope, because in the north of Ireland and in the rest of Europe, there are different bo- same bo- same products, but I mean, and they can be accessed uh, from the Republic. Uh, anybody buying in the north can bring down a bottle, and my chance to to bring it into a to a to an independent retailer knows that it won't happen with the machine because the machine will space it out. But hoping that the harassed shop assistant won't have sufficient knowledge and sufficient training to to identify uh, a, a uh, one that has been you know a fraudulent mm. one or one that doesn't have the barcode, and so and then there's the computation. So you know uh, the person comes in with a plastic bag and there's 12 cans and 16 bottles in it. And you're expecting the shop assistant to pick them up individually, examine each one, uh, calculate how many of those are at 15 cent, how many of those are 25 cent, and uh, then make the uh, make, make the arrangements for the credit to, to be provided. That's all done in a millisecond in mm. a machine. But it w- can't w- why be done not buy by a machine? Indeed, at fifteen thousand. Well, the yeah, opening price was thirteen thousand. Okay. Yeah. And and to be honest with you, we're not in the business to lose money. Mm. Um, but but it is most unfortunate that that, that shopkeepers throughout the country uh, have had. Have had Hobson's choice. They either they either go for this uh, machine, mm. or they say to people, "Well, I'm going to make use of the exemption because um, I can't take them back." Mm. Uh, the, health, the, the 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 food safety authority have given very clear indications that, in its current format, taking them back and storing them inside in the store would not be acceptable. You can't crush them. You can't compact them. They have to be taken away intact by the by the company who are going to be. Giving you ultimate credit if you did take them across the counter, whereas Mm -hmm. the machine compacts and everything and does the computation straight away.
2: Okay,
1: and as you say, it's
5: a two-tier situation.
1: As you'd say, without the machine, you'd have a member of staff. Uh, taking a, a bag of 20 bottles off me, for example, and checking that they all had the logo. And if one of them yes. didn't have the logo, they'd say, well, I'm sorry, that that's uh, the logo for Northern Ireland. That's the barrier
5: between yeah. yourself and your customer. and, and that's uh, an argument straight uh,
1: away. Well, p- perhaps it's an argument, but it, it, if I lose the argument, I don't want the bottle. It's not worth anything to no, me. You'll
5: just, toss, you'll just toss it there on the ground.
1: So, so I'm going to give you my rubbish. Yes, uh, and you're going to have a, a lot of, of bottles and cans to store up, which you say sure. the health and safety authority won't allow sure. anyway because it's taking up too and much space.
5: Sure, and, uh, and you know, and with the stale smell of or the alcohol's uh, stale smell, and with syrupy sm- sweet smell inside in your store, you know, we're very proud of our shops. We're very mm. proud of the of the facilities we provide to the, to the customers and the community day in day out. We would not want to actually reduce our standards by having this 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 is effectively bottle bank uh, in the corner waiting to be collected.
1: Mm. OK. Um, but uh, should the cans a- and bottles not be cleaned before they're brought back uh, to be recycled? Should there... Uh, they
5: should be, but there'll still be residual elements. And, and even with that, I mean, there again, you're just creating a barrier between yourself and your customer. Am I to tell somebody... That's too dirty, or you don't clean your bottles properly, or whatever. Mm. Again, that, we don't we don't go into business to have arguments with our customers, believe it or not, right?
1: Okay, but uh, you'll have no option but to apply this tax or, or whatever. Absolutely. This fifteen cent. If I go in and buy a, a bottle of water off you this morning, it'll be an extra. Or on Thursday, it'll be fifteen cent more expensive. Or next month, perhaps, is before the the As the, the stuff changes. Time, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, uh.
5: It will be. It will so, be 15 so cents. It will be 25 cents. And of course, so will don't you forget, keep we're, that 15 we're You see, we we would have paid our wholesaler the 15 cents,
1: right? Yeah, you know, we
5: would have paid them. So uh, you know, a slab of uh, a slab will have cost you three sixty extra. Uh, you know, so we have to get that back in 15 in dribs and drabs with 15 cents each bottle or 25 cents each bottle uh, as it comes back. And so you'll be just getting. We're front-loading by way of we're paying our wholesalers for the product. We then charge our customers for that. So mm. it's a complete loop at that point. The customer then has to go and get their uh, their, their deposit back at the reverse-sending machine.
1: Where, where, where's the start point for this? Uh, is the wholesaler also charged the 15 cent from yes, the, the producer? That's right. Yeah. The
5: wholesaler pays return. The, the company who is charged with, is a not-for-profit organization, charged mm. with running the whole business.
1: Okay, and then if I buy uh, whatever my slab of water or 7-Up or whatever it is uh, from your news agency and I want to return it, I go to the supermarket, then it it eventually goes back to them, is it?
5: Well, sorry, the the, the deposit then is handed back to you.
1: Oh yes, of course, yes, yes, yes. Because I've been charged. <laughs> you
5: can't be out. Yes, of you can't be out of money.
1: <laughs> How silly of me! Yes, okay, uh, but um, a lot of people won't be able to uh, get uh, to these machines. Uh, I take it if smaller shops aren't making them available. Oh,
5: uh, no, 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 no. I mean, look. I mean, well, for a start anyway, this was originally the, the 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 plan of the department that there yeah. would be a small number of reverse vending machines around the country. Hmm. But many of our members, I mean, well over seven hundred of them, are putting in reverse vending machines to, to, to complement those that are already going to be there in the Tesco, the Aldis, the Lidl, mm. and the like. So you will, you know, you will find that there are a substantial number around, but there still will be pockets and there still will be, you know, areas yeah. where people will have to travel some bit. Yeah, that's not dissimilar to, to to other countries. In fact, it would be the same as other countries. In fact, there's more. There's going to be more reverse vending machines population in Ireland than there will be in other countries, we'd still like to see a greater level of buy-in by the state because the state has effectively, they, they gave over to return, which is running the business very well, but they gave over then the whole running of it and they didn't actually there's no money, there's no state money involved whatsoever in this, none whatsoever. So no grants to small businesses, no accelerated capital allowances for tax efficiency. You know, They, they more or less said a, we want this to be done. Mm. Go ahead and do it. But there's no state, involved, and they really should. Sure, if the state really wants small businesses to, to survive yeah. and to service their community, they should be actually much more active.
1: Yeah, uh, but it, it'll be a problem for people, won't it? Because you can't crush the bottle or the can, uh, which is can part of it. Can't crush
5: it. Can't damage it. That's, can't the, pull that's part, the part
1: of the problem government. you have because they end up taking a lot of space. Uh, and if you don't have somewhere in, in your village that takes back your bottles, uh, well, then you're going to have to store them. Uncrushed and so on until, because a lot of people don't go to the big supermarket in the big town that often, I'm sure.
5: Yeah, it's going to change. Yeah. I mean, it's going to change your household, Michael, yeah. and uh, and all of the listeners' households. I mean, where currently they just put it into the recycling bag, there's going to have to be within their home a separate bag, a separate uh, 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 container, a separate crate for bottles and for cans, for those that have deposits. Uh, because you can't, you, you won't be throwing them into the, into the recycling anymore unless you actually have money to burn
1: Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment, Vincent thank you indeed for joining us, it's all ahead of us starting on Thursday the 1st of February, Vincent Jennings is uh, the Chief Executive of the Convenience Stores and News Agents Association The
0: Michael Reed Show brought to you by Airgrid managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it
1: Well, there's been an ongoing saga as regular listeners uh, to this programme will know about receiving documentation from Louth County Council and a freedom of information request uh, that resulted in two records being held by the council. uh, Result that we appealed to that resulted then in five records being discovered by the council. That was the final decision from Louth County Council. We did have an option to Uh, appealed that decision to the Information Commissioner and, uh, as you know, if you are a regular listener, the Information Commissioner directed Loud County Council to carry out a proper search. Now, um, we've uh, received some documents under uh, the Freedom of Information Act as a result of uh, that uh, appeal. Uh, and we do have some updates for you, uh, and this brings us to a, a different uh, part of uh, this saga. One of the interesting things that we can tell you about it is uh, that when we were told uh, by an official in Loud County Council as the final appeal uh, in this matter that there were only five records on uh, uh, on record, uh, and then it transpired that there were eight hundred ninety-two documents, which Loud County Council said didn't exist, Uh, we've discovered by getting uh, some 18 emails that the official who told us that there was five documents that Loud County Council had on record was the same official whose name appears on 35 occasions in the 18 emails that we received. The same official who said there was only five records wrote four emails received five emails and was involved in five email trails as they're described. These are emails that we cannot have sight of for various legal reasons, but a trail could mean two or 102 emails. Uh, But what we are convinced of is that the same official who told us that there were only five records being held by Louth County Council was party to dozens of emails. Anyway, there's lots more in these documents uh, for us uh, to go through once again with uh, Damien O'Farrell, Dublin City Councillor who represents uh, men who were abused by Christian brothers sexually abused by Christian <coughs> brothers when they were little children in various schools Damien, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for coming in to us uh, this morning and you've looked over these documents uh, and uh, you've a, a number of questions I think
2: Yeah, thank you Michael, I suppose to, to put it into context I suppose for your listeners, a group of men um, and these could be any men, any women, um, any families in Louth, citizens, you know, a group of men. They, dis- they, they want their issue discussed on an agenda. They wanted their issue discussed. They had a right for their issue to be discussed on agenda. And the chief executive, an unelected person, denied them of that right. She took their motion off the agenda. This was, a, this was, a, a, the, this was the prerogative of councillors alone. And that's, we believe, she was in breach of the Local Government Act. And Imelda Munster raised this in the Dáil last week, and Emil Martin said, I'm not clear on how a CEO can disallow a councillor's motion. I would find it difficult to comprehend. So Loud City Council, they now have a problem, and the councillors have a problem, and the Caharlach has a problem. But if we look at these uh, freedom of information documents, and you mentioned an official there, like this official wrote to councillor your, and he said your original, um, the original wording uh, was not rejected by management, or the CPG committee—that's a committee in, so inside, inside mm. uh, Loud County Corporate Council. Corporate policy, That's, it's subject mm. to the council, though it's mm. a secondary uh, mm. uh, uh, committee. But your original motion was not rejected by management or the CPG. This was legal advice. Now we've we, we still haven't seen this legal advice, and it's possibly mm. verbal legal advice because there was another document uh, reflecting that that it was some of the advice was verbal. But this is this, this was legal advice. So there's there's so are we to believe then? In this first, what he was writing about was the the original motion that Councillor Yor put forward. And we weren't looking at that stage for the freedom to be removed. We wanted to write to Brother Garvey. Brother Garvey had a relationship with Drada. He was a free man of Drada. He was from Drada. So we wanted to write to him to ask him, could he intervene? Mm. So there was a problem with the legal advice. The legal advice is, no, we can't do that. So his name was removed off the uh, off the motion that
1: was the purpose of the that
2: motion. Was the purpose of the motion, yeah. So the the original intention of the motion was totally was totally destroyed. And again, this is interference and um, by management. With the with the functions of of council, so this that's our total intention. So this, you just you just can't do this. And mm. and the, and the, the, the tarnished. Uh, I think Melda Munster said he was dismayed. That's what she she was standing in front of him, and she felt
1: that 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 was the look on his face. It was clear listening to it uh, that he couldn't understand it as it was presented, as he put it.
2: Yeah. So mm. then there was another document there. This is just this one is incredible. Now this is the same official, um, and again writing to a uh, councillor. We we've been advised again this legal advice that we can't see. The Loud County Council should not write to the order as we have no role in such matters. Now, this is just incredible. Mm. This is what councillors do. This is mm. what they represent people, they write. Have Have Loud County Council never written to anybody that's not their role? Have they written to I'm, I'm sure they've written to the, the, the Israeli ambassador in Dublin. They've written mm. to probably Putin. They've written to the Ukraine. Uh, councillor Pio, uh, Pio Smith wanted to put an amendment to that motion to write mm. to the government. Well, they wouldn't be able to write to the government either if you, if you come by that logic councillors um, are a political body mm. a political body and they represent people and they make representations and they're instructing the executive instructing the CEO to write and that they, the council would write um, to the brothers to to take them up on their heinous uh, litigation strategy to, to point them out so they're on legal advice they're saying they can't write
1: Nor, normal everyday run of the mill stuff yeah. for councillors and council executives councillors ask the council executive to write to whoever except yes. Brother Edmund Garvey or except the Christian brothers. Well, there
2: seems to be a problem with this motion. You know, I don't know what that, you know, there seems to be a problem with this motion. There's obstacles put in the way of this. that They just did not want to deal with this particular one. They've read, I'm sure there's 50 or 100 letters that they've written this year, but the legal advice says they we don't Okay. Own. Yeah. The legal advice, uh, we don't, we cannot write to the order as we have no role on such matters. Like, it's just cre- incredible. Yeah. Now, another another document there, again, incredible. And I'm not going to name anybody because the person would be embarrassed, you know, but these these victims, they were treated so badly and councillors just ignored them in Drada. The the, the the then um, mayor of Drogheda. Uh, she just ignore ignored them and all, so they decided they would come up to Dublin, or sorry, come to up to Drada. and yeah, yeah. then they came from one. One came from the UK, and they came from mm. all over all over Ireland, and they wanted to meet councillors. and They sent them an invitation to come to the Boyne Valley Hotel, and they were providing catering as well, pastries and tea. and They like they asked councillors to respond, you know, or SVP. I think six councillors, seven councillors responded in total, and five mm. of twenty nine turned up at the meeting, but one councillor when he got the letter from the from the victims uh, instead of uh, replying Spendiff of or or svp now this person is elected person mm. he sent that letter to the management mm. to the official that we're talking about already he sent that to that like what that is just bizarre mm. this mm. person is is a, is a publicly elected official and you would send the letter off to to an official mm. i mean why It just what would that be about? Mm. And, and and the, the he put it with the when he when mm. he forwarded on, he it, had it, some comments, and they mm. were we can't see those they're comments, redacted, they're yeah. redacted. You mm. know, mm. it's I don't know what they, they said, but people can mm. make up their own minds about mm. what they said. We were there's, obviously there's annoying no, there's people, no, there's no
1: wrongdoing in that, of no, course. No, there's no wrongdoing, uh, of course. He's entitled to send it on to whoever, but uh, uh you'd wonder why. But, but was he looking for advice or something from the council official or but. What was about whether, whether yeah. about whether he could come to a meeting to meet victims
2: of sexual abuse and listen to what they had to say if they were there nearly a year trying mm. to contact counselors they were yeah. just ignored yeah so that so that raised eyebrows i suppose absolutely absolutely yeah. Yeah. you know and there was anomalies in those freedom of information mm. as well i was looking at the train there was one we, we, i don't think we're finished w- with them yet with mm. with the 36 that you got there were some anomalies there were some missing there was a trail mm. there was people um writing officials writing to other officials, but they wouldn't have they wouldn't have had the information that they was writing about unless an email was sent to them. But that email isn't there. Mm. And there was one email that didn't have the body. They didn't have the body in it, but it, it wasn't redacted. So there's yeah. some now There could be human error there and all that. But there's still a lot of work to be done on on those free those freedom of information mm. documents. Mm. but. It's just extraordinary that we're that we're still here. I'm still coming onto your programme, and and uh, the victims are so appreciative, are so appreciative of, of LFM that that you're following this. But it's a public interest story. Mm. If there's no governance in Loud City in in Loud County Council,
1: um, yeah, that's the issue. Well, as you mentioned, the Munster raised this uh, with uh, the Tarnisha in the door last week, uh, and uh, the Tarnisha said he didn't understand uh, how a motion could have uh, been. Uh, disallowed from the council agenda by an unelected person uh, an unelected person could disallow a councillor's motion to thaw, she said, he, he just didn't understand that um, Imelda Munster then spoke to us on Friday uh, and she called on the Minister for Local Government to intervene and investigate this um, what do you make of that? Well, absolutely. I mean, that that's where this has to go. I mean, at the
2: moment, this week, I think the, the government are, have a campaign and it's led by that uh, Kieran O'Donnell. He's a, he's a Fine Gael uh, minister for local government about uh, about governance in the local authority, you know, about councillors, about the elections, about the role of councillors, about the role of... So it would be good, maybe, possibly, if, if he could come onto to the show sometime. Um, this the, He needs to investigate this. And it's something very interesting that to said. I, I just want to, re- to read mm. it out, you know. We need to be confident that they, and she was talking about Loud County Council, are adhering to Local Government Act and the Freedom of Information Act. And she went on to say, if it is not investigated and allowed to continue, then if something like this is just brushed under the carpet, the next time it comes around and the next time, then all of a sudden we have no local democracy. So from that perspective, the Minister for Local Government needs to inquire, to investigate, to ask questions, and it certainly can't go unchallenged. But Imelda says the next time it comes around, and the next time, how do we know it hasn't happened in the past? Mm. How do we know? The local government act—I read there—it was in the journal there during the summer that there was a there was a Garda investigation into another breach of a local government act. Uh, and this was to do with disposals of uh, of property just down in Munster. But the local government act is 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 a, is a very very important document, and C.E.'s job is to follow it. And under Section forty-seven of the Local Government Act, um, the Local Government Reform Act, the, the role of the CE is set out, and it's to assist and advise councillors. And in this instance, that there's no record of that happening. The count, the um, Connor Keelan wasn't informed about the motion being taken off the agenda. It's on the CPG that the that the CE made that decision. Mm. She did. It. She put it down in the minutes. Mm. Mm. How disrespectful is that to councillors
1: mm. that she puts down in the minutes something that she did, that she's not supposed to do, and she's just showing it to yeah. them. Uh, and Conor Keelan said he was so dissatisfied with that that he wanted his dissatisfaction to be reflected in the minutes of Loud County Council, and also that he would have preferred that the motion had been tabled, debated and voted on. And, of course, that is not what happened. Uh, And that is what led uh, the Taoiseach uh, to say he didn't understand the situation, uh, a situation that few seem to be able to understand and, Mm. indeed, a situation that has not ever been explained to us uh, by Louth County Council. Uh, You're a Dublin City Council councillor yourself uh, you hold public office uh, and as somebody who holds public office you can take complaints to the standards and public office uh, SIPO uh, and you've asked SIPO to investigate this.
2: Yeah I've asked during the summer I contacted uh, SIPO somewhere I think last year or maybe around September and they said I I had to go to uh, Loud County Council in the first instance you know, to see what they had to say. And if I wasn't satisfied with what they had to say, I could bring it on to SIPO. So I, I went to Loud County Council and the person that was the ethics officer who introduced himself as a, another senior official, a different senior official than the other person, Um, he introduced himself as the ethics officer. And he said he would take my complaint. Now, before he sent me that email, a week before he sent me that email, and a week after he sent me that email, he had con- he contacted your show, uh, on behalf of Loud County Council, given the position of Loud County Council, on the exact same issue that I was complaining about. That's not ethical in my view. So I got back to SIPO and I explained this to them and I sent them the emails that, that I'd received from this man. And they said to me, if I wasn't satisfied, that was fair enough. I could mm. take the complaint directly to SIPO. I could bypass. So that, that's exactly what I'm doing. So I'm preparing my complaint at the moment. Mm. But again, it's, it's the minister. This goes right to the local, mm. the heart of local democracy. And the councilor, the council now, the councillors, the elected have a problem now and this isn't going to go away. And I don't know whether there isn't huge experience in the in the top end of the council, the Kohorlock the, the and the assistant uh, cohorlock. There's not huge experience there, but um, well, they need to get advice now. I was on this radio station, I think a couple of weeks ago. I said there needs to be a mm-hmm. special, uh, a special meeting. They suspended standing orders in lieu of that. No councillor asked the asked the ce a question. About, about removing the motion. Nobody asked her that question. Mm. She issued a statement on the 5th of January. She didn't address it at all. Uh, she, she, she talked mm. about the freedom of, of information. She wants to talk about the freedom of information um, but she doesn't want to talk about the breach of the Local Government Act. Um, she talks about, about the law and she talks about, we want the CE to to comply with the law because we believe the law has mm. been breached and the cohort, the, because the focus is going to move on to the councillors now. And the public will want to know, mm. what are the councillors doing about it? They can have another, they can have a special meeting, they can suspend the, um, the, the CE while this investigation goes on, they could sack the CE. We, we were looking for the CE to resign. It's very clear to the victims how we were treated. It's very clear and it's very, it's a very simple act, you know, and it wasn't complied with. And it, a point I want to make, there's, we talk about legal advice, there is no legal advice existing no legal advice that's advising the CEO to disregard the local government act and the councillors, I've said this before, are very very foolish if they think that that's the case. Mm. There's no legal
1: advice advising somebody to disregard the legislation. Mm. Mm. No, of course not. Uh, as you know as well um, uh, resulting from the freedom of information uh, requests and the documents that have just been granted to this programme We wrote a a very long letter to Laodice County Council asking many, many questions uh, that flow from these documents and some very significant pertinent questions. Uh, The response to that was that Laodice County Council have no comment to make. Uh, Is uh, that what you'd have expected, Damien? Well, from this council...
2: And um, from this council, from this CEO, I, I absolutely. That's what's happening They're just burying the sand, burying the head in the sand and thinking this will go away. Well, it's not going to go away. But the focus, as I said, turns on to the Coherlock of Loud County Council, uh, Councillor Paula Butterley. And and, and councillors and the chief whips to see what they were going to do. Like this verbal, I hope this ver, this v- verbal advice. And this is a fair question, isn't from Councillor Kevin Callan? I'm sure I'm, I'm sure it's not, but we we don't know. There's, there's in those freedom of information documents it talks about verbal advice. So I hope the verbal advice isn't from existing councillors.
1: Well, I, I think the council has its own firm of it solicitors own, yeah. that advise them legally, uh, yeah. and uh, I think uh, the reason you mentioned Councillor Collins because he's a, a barrister and he obviously yeah, would have yeah. a legal understanding of these matters uh, and uh, he opposed rescinding the freedom of drama. Yeah, he, uh, I take it that's the connection yeah, that he, you're but you're making. Doesn't, he doesn't yet, seem,
2: but he, he doesn't seem he has 100% bad. trust in the CEO he doesn't feel mm. this is any mm. problem. Mm. And, uh, and as the lock does as well uh, another yeah, councillor who is also a barrister. That's right and mm. it's, it's it's unbelievable and it's clear mm. that the mm. Local Government Act has been breached and the Tawne the that cannot comprehend how that could happen cannot comprehend it. Mm. So really the the, the councillors here need to take you know I don't know who they're listening to but they need mm. to start they start um li- looking at the act and read the act it's the Local Government Reform Act 2014 and it's section 47 and it's very it's a few paragraphs
1: and it's very clear OK, well, we we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, and I do mean for the moment, because I think that we will be hearing more about this story in the coming days. Damien O'Farrell, thanks once again for coming into us today.
0: Thank you. Thank you indeed. Read Show, brought to you by Airgrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it.
1: On Friday, the International Court of Justice in its interim ruling ordered Israel to prevent genocidal acts in Gaza. The charge of genocide leveled against Israel is not only false, it's outrageous,
6: and decent people everywhere should reject it. On the eve of the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, I again pledge as Israel's Prime Minister, never again Israel will continue to defend itself against Hamas, a genocidal terror organization. On October 7th, Hamas perpetrated the most horrific atrocities against the Jewish people since the Holocaust. And it vows to repeat these atrocities again and again and again. Our war is against Hamas terrorists, not against Palestinian civilians. We will continue to facilitate humanitarian assistance and to do our utmost to keep civilians out of harm's way, even as Hamas uses civilians as human shields. We will continue to do what is necessary to defend our country and defend our people.
1: The Israeli PM, Benjamin Netanyahu. Let's speak uh, to Jim Roach, P.R.O. and Secretary of uh, the Irish Anti-War Movement Steering Committee. Jim, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. What did you make of uh, the ruling from the ICJ ordering Israel to prevent genocidal acts? Uh, although it does have uh, the jurisdiction, it says, to investigate whether that may have happened uh, as of yet, uh, but it was disappointing, was it not, in that uh, it didn't order a ceasefire?
6: Good morning, Michael. Thanks for talking to me. I uh, hope you can hear me okay Yeah, there. sure. Uh, yeah, good to talk to you again. Look, um, this is truly historic. I mean, the South African case has been accepted uh, as having merit has been plausible by the, the world's number one court. The whole Israeli defense that was put forward has been denied by the court, uh, uh, you know, including the, the so-called right to defend itself, which, which Israel made much of. The, the court just ignored this. They've accepted as fact that there has been genocidal intent, not just that there is merit in what South African, uh, but they, they've accepted it as fact. Uh, they basically said the Israeli case is untrue in this regard, and they quoted the the president of Israel, the minister of defense, in their own uh, statements of genocidal intent. And the, the other thing, uh, another aspect, I suppose, is that the huge majority uh, in, in all of the aspects that were voted on, all the provisional measures, either 15 to 2 or 16 to 1, the one or two being the uh, Israeli uh, judge and the Ugandan judge, and in one case, even the the Israeli judge voted for the uh, the um, order that Israel will prevent and punish public incitement to commit genocide against Palestinians. Mm. That was very
1: interesting. Brilliant. But wh- wh- why, why why did it sh- stop short of ordering a ceasefire then?
6: I know. Look, this is disappointing because we all want to see uh, the, a stop to the slaughter. It's very disappointing for Palestinians and for Gazans in particular. But I think there's some legal legal reason that they can only do that after they uh, assess the, uh, the merits of the case. I, that's, I was I was listening to the um, judge Donahue last night, reading through the thing, and that's that's what came across to me. However. Even though ceasefire is not mentioned, if you read these orders, the only way to comply with these orders mm. is to have a ceasefire. So now it is up to the governments of the world, including the Irish government, but particularly the US government, you know, to say, look, there has to be a ceasefire here. There is no way that Israel can comply with these orders. Uh, and it will be in, Bre- and in fact, it's already in breach of the orders anyway, because in- within the first 24 hours after the ruling, it killed another 180. People in Gaza. So and now, of course,
1: but but no doubt, it it dropped uh, leaflets out of airplanes saying we're going to uh, bomb this area or whatever. Um, uh, So they so so people were warned and given the opportunity to get out. I mean, is that not the Israeli argument?
6: Well, that's their argument, but, uh, they sometimes do that and they sometimes don't. And even when, when they do that, it's questionable that it's valid. They have any right to do that. And in my view, they don't have a right. In my view, they shouldn't be in Gaza in the first place. They have no right to be in Gaza. A bit like saying, you know, France would have a right to invade Algeria, uh, as an occupying power. Um, if, if, uh, if you know, if one of the Algerian groups had, had, uh, murdered some of the French settlers, you know, Mm. So th- th- that's the valid comparison I I think to make. I I think this is hugely damning against it. Everyone is saying it. Jeremy Bowen, of the BBC, made made that uh, conclusion. You know, uh, the 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 problem is now it's gone off the it's gone out of the news. There's attempts by the Western governments and some, much of the mainstream media now because of Israel's allegations of the. Uh, um is, is it twelve UNRWA officials who may have helped with the uh the seventh of October attack by Hamas helped in some way, we don't know and they're pure allegations. So now of course there's a new story in the media. But this is huge. What happened on Friday is absolutely huge. It's unprecedented and we should welcome it. And what we should be doing now, all of us who want to get a ceasefire, is be putting pressure on our governments to do everything to sanction Israel. Uh, to in the case of the Irish government, I think they should be calling in the U.S. ambassador and saying, this has to stop. Can you please let Mr. Biden know that the Irish people are against this and we cannot support it? And the Irish government should row in full scale now behind South Africa's case.
1: OK, well, it looks like that probably will be the case. Minister Helen McEntee saying over the weekend uh, that uh, she believes that uh, the government should support the South African case. Uh, so I'm sure that's encouraging for you.
6: It, it, I, I I was quite, I heard that interview uh, yesterday at lunchtime. I was quite surprised, and it, it was welcome, like, and... Uh, you know, I'm also surprised with me on Martin's remarks about unrest. So I think maybe there's a change coming. And that's come because of the pressure that has been brought to bear by the opposition parties and by the protesters on the streets. We had a great protest there outside the doll on Wednesday uh, and the motion, the the Social Democrats motion was being debated. And again, it was a very close vote. If four people had defected, it would have been a tie. You know, so that's how close it was. So the government, the Irish government, is really scared. They were very slow to come out and call for a ceasefire. They have they, they uh, have refused. In fact, they, they condemned South African South Africa's
1: initiative. Are you being are, asking, you, you know? are you being fair? I I, I thought um, that the Irish government was one of uh, the most critical governments in the world uh, against uh, the Israeli offensive.
6: No, they're not i feel sorry to disappoint you. I think they They're are. regarded in some quarters as being progressive, but they were quite slow to call for a full ceasefire uh, after the onslaught started, um, and they've been sitting on the fence ever since. And even though like, two weeks ago. Uh, Leo Baradska said. uh, I
1: I think they were causing for pauses to allow humanitarian aid in for some time and then uh, did call for a a ceasefire. But uh, I would have thought that they did both or made both statements uh, well ahead of many other countries.
6: No, look, to be fair, they did, right? But not ahead of Belgium or or Spain. I think they were before them. But, you know, they are, I suppose, in in Europe. uh, one of the countries now calling for for a ceasefire. But they have to go further. Like, they have to call hmm. for sanctions on Israel. In our view, they have to pass the occupied territories. OK, like-
1: but there, there wasn't the possibility of joining this case with South Africa up to now. Yeah. Now we're hearing from the government, by way of Helen McEntee, that that is probably what's going to happen.
6: Well, I hope it does happen, hmm. and I, they should be announcing it today. I mean, what's the delay here? I mean, it... This, this ruling is unprecedented. It's damning. It's, uh, it's complicated.
1: <laughs> and, it's, and it's so it's up. so complicated that it's been interpreted in many different ways. Uh, the complete opposite, the polar opposite, uh, in fact, of what uh, you've uh, just interpreted it to mean by some. So obviously the Irish government has to have its own independent analysis of the ruling before taking a position on it, Jim. Yeah,
6: look, Everything is common. I know Mark, Mark was on with you there last week uh, on how, how to make the neutrality issue complicated as well. It, it is complicated. It's not that complicated as well. <laughs> so, um, like, if I can quote Craig Murray, right? Craig Murray is a UK uh, he former ambassador to Uzbekistan and uh, now a peace activist, long, ter- long time now. Peace. He says that he, the International Court has not affirmed Israel's right to self-defense, perhaps the most important point in the interim order. That's one thing he said, and another thing he said is about the facts they identified, and I've mentioned them already. The facts that uh, Israel is is has indulged in uh, uh, statements of genocidal intent. I mean, that's an incredible uh, recognition by the court, by uh, 16, 15 to one, sorry,
1: 16
6: to one. Mm. You know, or, or sorry, maybe maybe it's 15 to two. Okay, but but the. The order, then, is to say that Israel will prevent and po- punish public incitement to commit genocide against Palestinians, voted for, including by the Israeli judge. Yep. So this is, this is incredible. This is unprecedented. And we should take store from this, even though we're all disappointed that there isn't uh, an immediate ceasefire. We mm, have to it, and we get that by governments of the world putting pressure on the United States and on Israel to stop this genocide.
1: Jim, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Jim Roach, PRO and Secretary of the Irish Anti-War Movement Steering Committee.
0: The Michael Reid Show with Airgrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones.
1: Well, RTA is back in the news once again after publishing its list of its 10 highest paid Presenters, And indeed, uh, there are many other reasons why RTE continues to make news and we'll be hearing uh, about them by way of various committees, I'm sure, in the coming weeks. Let's speak to the chair of uh, the Public Accounts Committee, Brian Stanley, who's on the line. A very good morning to you and thanks for joining us with the Grant Thornton report on RTE's late, late toy show, The Musical, last week that led to a, a lot of questions there's more reports coming down the line uh, but can I ask you about the top 10 earners or, or more specifically about the 6 top earners because none of them work for RTA. apparently they all do a little bit of work uh, as contractors for them and each of them are paid more than the Taoiseach uh, what are your thoughts on that?
7: Well my thoughts uh, my thoughts um, are, are well known on this <clears throat> that um, Michael I have to say to you that you know excessive pay at RTA, obviously we've called for that to be reduced Um, it's a matter for the board of RTE Uh, there are presenters there in receipt of large sums of money there has been some reductions in recent years but it needs to go further particularly given given the fact that RTE is in financial difficulty
1: Mm. Um, What are the tax implications uh, for people uh, who are not PAYE workers uh, if uh, they're self-employed as I take it these contractors are Uh, and they work for RTA, I I take it that they don't pay the same rate uh, of PRSI, let's say, as PAYE workers uh, pay, uh, and that uh, they can claim tax back on expenses in a way that PAYE workers can't. So if, like Joe Duffy, you earn €351,000, it's worth more to you than if you were a -A PAYE employee.
7: Well, that's one of the unusual things about the uh, about the, about the top presenters at RT, uh, and indeed, you know Sinn Féin, the party I represent, and indeed the Public Accounts Committee. We have dug into this in relation to bogus self-employment, and there's investigations ongoing at the moment by the Department of Social Protection into all that. Revenue have also been involved in it, and indeed we addressed this with Revenue mm-hmm. no later than last week. But there are. Uh, they are entitled to uh they are entitled to form a company, which is the way they do it, uh and they're contracted then by RT to provide provide services. And as you correctly said, Mike, that the the uh you know the tax and everything else that they pay is based then around what it is for you know for the company contracted in. Um and and obviously you wouldn't do that unless it's beneficial for your own purposes to do that.
1: But it's um, hard to understand. I mean if you if you walk down the street today and spoke to anyone And you ask them, where does Joe Duffy work? Or Claire Byrne, Miriam O'Callaghan, Ray Darst? Everybody will tell you they work for RTE. But they don't work for RTE because of this arrangement.
7: And this this has always been the case in RTE that the top presenters were always uh, always companies. They always had their own companies. And they they were contracted for work. And then they had agents like Mr Noel Kelly who negotiated on their behalf. That's the way it's been worked. Uh, My understanding is, and I've spoken to Kevin Backhurst about this, uh, back to the latter half of last year, uh, and I know that he's anxious to try and deal directly with with, uh, with presenters. There is legally though they are entitled to do that, and that, uh, you know that's where the law is. But there are question marks over what is what, what is an employee and what is uh, a company. Mm. And you're correct. I mean, they have all the characteristics it would look on the face of it that that uh, characteristics of an employee, but that could be contested from the point of view that, you know, that they provide a service, that they, uh, you know, that they don't take direct orders from mm. uh, a, a particular manager or whatever else, that they're very much contracted in to provide a show. They provide a show. That's their job done. That's their service provided. So there's a kind of a fine line there. But I think the bigger issue is that there certainly is an issue around that, but the big issue is is the, the level of high pay you know, for people doing an hour-long show. Um, you know, it still is excessive. It was, it was a lot higher than that. It was, yeah. you know, there was people getting uh, 700,000, mm. uh, 700,000 plus. If you go back a few years ago, close,
1: close to a million in Pat Kenny's day, yeah, yes. Which yeah.
7: was, I tell you, would be very happy with that, Mike, if you got it. You know, <laughs> but, but I, I wouldn't but, sleep.
1: I wouldn't sleep well, <laughs> to be honest. You know, yeah.
7: But the, the, the bigger, you know, the, the latest report that we have, the Grand Conjuring Report some of which you would have suspected was going to come in, but I think just the, the breath of uh, the breath of cock-ups in this and the, the bad practices is just, um, you know, it's it's very it's very worrying, mm. you know, that they, they went ahead with this musical tie show. They are a commercial semi-state company, and you know and I know that, you know, if you're involved in commercial activity, you do have to take some risks. However, you know, there seemed to be a complete absence of market research. There was uh, the total absence of any kind of a proper business case, there was risks that they identified themselves that they then went on to ignore, such as the fact that they were moving into a crowded market. You know, the Christmas musicals, mm. uh, you know, the fact that it's a difficult market to develop anyway uh, to get into. Um, you know, the lack of expertise because in that kind of event, uh, event, and events because, you know, they're predominantly, as Grant Horton said, they're predominantly uh, a broadcaster mm. um, and you know, but they are a commercial activity that's been involved in commercial activity for six, seven always, decades.
1: It, it was always going to be a flock. Even if they sold all the tickets that they hoped to sell in the convention centre, they still would have run at a, a loss. It was too expensive to put on.
7: Well, I was coming to that and that, that's one of the other ones. I mean, that was, that, that was really one the one that caught my eye in the report was that, under Grant Thornton concluded that, uh, and I have it here in front of me, that to break even with 44 shows uh, they would need an 80% attendance in a, in a 2,000-seater venue. Now that would be fairly healthy if you got an 80%. Mm. You'd be going well, but they would need to re- need to have 44 shows to break even. Uh, but in actual fact, there's only 35 on sale at any one time.
1: Mm. And um, sold 11,000 know, tickets, I think.
7: 11,000 yeah, tickets. Yeah, so yeah, the, yeah, the projection yeah. would have been that you know they would need to be selling 100,000 plus. Mm. Right. So like we're a long way off to mark with it. I think, you know, as well, just, you know, again, and I know I spoke to you about this, Mike, back last year, yeah. that bad practice in terms of corporate governance, financial management, just seemed to be totally absent. And the the breakdown, again, between the connection between the management team and, you know, RT often confuse this when they're talking to the public. The management team isn't the board, that's the management team. Mm. Uh, that's Kevin Backhurst and his team. You know, he's new in since last year. Uh, and the senior managers that were there and the appointed board, which is now headed by Shuny Ratley, which you know, which is the ultimate um body that are, that everyone in RT is held accountable to. But you know, that board and, you know, Ratley, I take it to she there at the time, but that board as well, you know, seemed to be um uh you know, weren't as on top of the game as they should have been because there's quotations are in the report for one person says that I don't remember any discussion around this. That's exactly what he said. Mm. Uh, my sense of my sense of was we were going to get more updates and continuous updates on court. But when he didn't get it or she didn't get it, did they ask for them? Right? Another another board member said it wasn't on the agenda. It wasn't an agenda item. Mm. That's a mm-hmm. direct right quote. Okay. There was no paperwork. This was the first time I heard of the Thai show musical. I had no information about it. I hadn't seen it.
1: Uh, And And, we're really only uh, scratching the surface here. Uh, I've run out of time, Brian. I'm sorry to cut you short uh, uh, because I think uh, you could be here for a long time uh, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more through the committee's apologies. As I say, thank you for joining us today. Brian Stanley, Sinn Féin TD and Chair of the Public Accounts Committee. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
0: Listen back to the Michael Reed Show podcast on lmfm.ie or the LMFM app. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.